The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Once again. And tonight, we're getting mystical. We're going to go back into one of our earliest episodes where we talked about the satanic panic and some of the whole culture of mysticism that rose up during the 80s and the 90s and kind of was swirling all around like a typhoon. And to help us discuss this, we've enlisted an old friend, uh, Dave Towers, who has a strong interest in, well, mysticism, the occult, and all things odd. Welcome to the show, Towers. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Hello, everybody. Uh, well, we're, we're very happy to have you because, as I said, you've done a lot of uh, research into this topic. And I think, first, why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Sure. So, um, I, you know, I guess we'll get into it a lot during the show. But um, I, I guess I'm an armchair enthusiast into mysticism, the occult, and esotericism. Um, I Probably something I did much more in my younger years, um, but it's something that's always held a kind of passionate place in my heart. And so here I am. Okay, okay. And so when did you first get interested in, like, uh, esotericism and mysticism? So, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. We uh, had an email exchange, the, a group of us. And there, the issue of the satanic panic came up, and I was remembering that moment of time myself and what was going on. And I remember initially being quite afraid of it because I didn't know what to believe. Um, and so in an odd way, what I decided to do was try to research it. And so that's actually what started me on this path. I started researching Satanism. And now this was out, back when you were 16 years old. Yeah, I was 15 or 16 years old. And this would have been about what, the mid-1980s? Yeah, 85, 86, 87, which probably would have been at the beginning of that whole thing, if I remember correctly. I'm not really sure when it started um, off the top of my head, but uh, in that area, mid 80s, mm -hmm. let's say. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I had started studying um, Satanism and trying to figure out its origins and where it came from. And of course, you start to trace your way backwards and come across Anton LaVey and what was going on with all of him. Mm -hmm. And then I came across Aleister Crowley. And so mm -hmm. I kind of immersed myself in the world of Aleister Crowley a little bit. I became quite lucky um, early on in my research. I um, John K. King Books is in Detroit for anybody who's in the area. It's one of the best uh, used bookstores in the country of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And um, they get lots of weird stuff. And it just so happened that a large collector of mystic books had died and all of his collection found their way to John K. King Books. Wow. And so, uh, do you yeah. remember this, Don? Yeah, and I was just thinking, yeah, that hardly sounds ominous at all. <laughs> uh, right. So I bought up a bunch of Aleister Crowley books that he had and a, a whole ton of different books that were there um, and and bought them for not that expensive, you know, eight, nine bucks a piece kind of thing. I guess at the time it was a lot of money for me, but um, I bought all these books up and started reading um, because really none of that stuff existed in libraries. Libraries didn't want to carry anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly it didn't seem scholarly 
Um, and so um, I started reading and I started sharing information. We would talk about it on our walks at night. Mm-hmm. And so as I started to get Alistair Crowley, then I started the next question, of course, is where did Alistair Actually, Crowley? No, the next question is what, what were you taking walks at night for? Were you out looking for virgins to sacrifice as part of your dark <laughs> rituals? What was the point of these walks at night? So it's funny, you know, I, it, it's, I think if you heard that, these this day and age uh, that teenagers are walking the streets at two o'clock in the morning, walking around, um, thinking, talking and doing things, you'd think they were crazy. But when we were teenagers, that's what we did on a Friday, Saturday night. Myself, Don, Doe, group of other guys would just go walking and we mm-hmm. would walk for miles and miles and miles. And mm-hmm. we weren't up to bad things. We were actually talking about deep philosophy and um, the meaning of life, the universe and everything and all these kind of things. We were actually having really deep debates about things, um, which, again, sounds very odd. And I guess people don't give teenagers enough credit. But, mm. you know, when we were teenagers, we were capable of all these things. And that's what we were doing is right. kind of bouncing ideas off each other. Sorry to interrupt. It's just no, that you good. talk about all these dark occult books and suddenly you're wandering the streets <laughs> at night. Yes, so yes, there's, yes. There's some natural connections that the audience might make there. And so I just wanted to make sure they know that you were totally not sacrificing virgins or anything I was, like that absolutely not sacrificing anything i did go on um there was a a weird thing that was going on at the beginning of all this satanic panic and it used to be like i went to a catholic school and groups of guys be like hey let's go we found a satanist worship place let's go destroy it and you drive to some guy's farm at two o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. um to try to find the satanic thing now my in my later years i think why didn't we just go at two o'clock in the afternoon wouldn't it be a lot (laughs) less scary then why did we go at two o'clock at night it doesn't make any sense but we were dumb teenagers right right so i mean we did do these things i can remember driving somewhere in the midst of all this happening and getting my car stuck down this side road and my friend panicking hysterically that it was a trap that the satanists and the witches were going to get us uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's crazy that this people believe this. And I, that was really, like I said, that was the impetus to try to understand all these things for me. Um, right. I probably didn't share with a lot of people outside of my close friends that would understand that I was reading Aleister Crowley, who is known as the beast and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I probably didn't share that to too many people. And I probably didn't share it with my parents either. Mm, um, right. Because I think in that context, how do you understand if you think there's Satanism going on and you're a god-fearing catholic um mm. it's not so hard of a leap to think oh my god my son's involved right he's been well, acting strange lately and he's been playing that dungeons and dragons thing well absolutely right yeah exactly all, all you'd be doing is living up to the stereotype well you're right um so it's interesting so we got into that mm-hmm. and then from that i found the golden dawn okay what's the and golden dawn so the hermetic order of the golden dawn is kind of the um I, I could say quintessential, but I could also say stereotypical secret society magic group that self-imploded back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think they went from about roughly 1880 to around 1920. In some form, they continued on in different versions, but mm-hmm. in the core group, they kind of existed for about maybe 40 years or so. Okay. Um, Crowley was a member, um, and he was primary reason why the group imploded because most people hated him Mm -hmm. um and so it was mainly a group of 
English and mainly English people, but there were some Irish and a couple of French people involved um, that were uh, had its origins in the Freemasonry, mm-hmm. um, which I can get into later on. Right. Um, had its initial origins in Freemasonry as a side group of Freemasonry. And then three guys from that group decided to start their own group, invite people who are non-Masons into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it weighed heavily on a lot of Egyptian um, themes that were uh, present at that time, because, of course, all the things going on with, with the Egyptian Egyptology was huge then. Right. Um, and so it found its way in absolutely into that. A lot of Masonic stuff found its way into it because it's got started by Masons, right? Right. Well, okay. Uh, uh, just to pause here for a sec. Sorry to keep yeah. interrupting. I mean, I just have this, a lot of this leads to questions, and I'm, I want to make sure our audience understands this. So, what was the goal here? Like, why were these people getting into this stuff? What was the point of doing all this? So, I mean, in order to understand that, you kind of have to understand a very basic premise that I, one of the things I came to the conclusion of after doing years and years of research into this is I I did ask myself that question a lot. Mm. What makes someone want to be a mystic? Right. And ultimately what I found and what I decided is the reason why people do this is they're not happy with the major explanations for why the universe works. Mm -hmm. And going back into the history of mysticism Really, you're left with the answers from Judaism, the answers from Christianity, the answers from Hinduism, Buddhism, and the major religions. Mm-hmm. But primarily, we're talking Western religions, so let's you just kind of keep it straight to Judaism and and Christianity and later Islam, right. um, because it does get into Islam as well later on. Okay, um, and I can I'll talk about that a bit, but um, ultimately, it's somebody who doesn't get those answers and then. Mm-hmm finds other people who didn't get those answers. And those people typically will get together and try to find other ways to apprehend the unknown. Okay. I guess that's so, the best, simplest way I can put it. So it's yeah. a bunch of people getting together, trying to understand, you know, the world around them, basically, in a way that, is, in a way that isn't reflected by the major religions. Yes, and then the secondary part of it is, and I think what happened more so with people was then there's this idea of something special that only your group has. And then that creates this lust for, I would say in the case of the Golden Dawn, a lust for power and a lust for being able to do things other people can't do and the lust for feeling mm-hmm. special um, mm-hmm. and feeling different than others. But And I think that also makes a mystic as someone who definitely doesn't feel like they fit with the standard things that are going on and feels that they're kind of above all this kind of stuff. So Mm. I think there's definitely a certain personality that gets involved in these kind of things. Yeah, because you know what that sounds a lot like? Mm -hmm. Uh, That sounds a lot like uh, what we got nowadays with all the conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not that much different. It's not that much different than being a YouTuber. Mm. I mean, in a weird way. It's, right. it's it's the same, you know, it's this idea that somehow you're special and what you have, you can influence things mm. Yeah, in a weird way. I always assumed it was an excuse to get uh, drunk, laid and naked or wait. Oh, it's in, in that, in that, maybe in that order. Um, naked and laid would probably be better. <laughs> that depends. You can do it either way. That's some forms of Druidism and Wicca. 
Mm. Right. That's a different thing altogether. <laughs> well, so was it? What, wait, I heard rumors that Anton LaVey and friends were into that kind of thing, weren't they? What into Wicca? No, into like the whole. That was part of the whole Satanism mystique back in the seventies, wasn't it? That they were like having orgies and everything. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a counterculture. I mean, Satan is yeah. just a great way to piss your parents off. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, it really, it's, it's, it was just a way to kind of thumb your nose at established society. Mm. Um, and, and, and so everything was against, you know, you're just like, okay, well, everybody likes the cross. We're going to use the upside down cross and, mm. and we're going to offend everybody. And so it's just a way to rebel. And to right. me, that was all Satanism and Anton LaVey was about was just a big joke to rebel against people. I don't think he ever really, um, you know, really did this, but Hey, he got to hang out with the Eagles. Right. So, right. <laughs> he, he got drunk and laid a lot and that one. He did. And that's, it worked for him. It was just a symptom of the sixties, I guess. Right. Well, okay. That does make sense. Okay. But on the other hand, Crowley and friends were actually pretty serious about this. Crowley was, I mean, and Crowley was, you know, I've gone back and forth on Crowley. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I learned very early on is that Crowley was really heavy into drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and this isn't this isn't a secret. There's, he actually wrote a book called Diary of a Drug Fiend, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it's all about this guy who keeps using cocaine to and cocaine. This is in the 1920s, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and you don't think cocaine goes back that far, but it does. Using cocaine and other drugs to try to elicit religious and spiritual spiritual experiences mm -hmm. and keeps getting deeper and deeper. And then the question is what's happening to him? Is he just a drug addict or is he actually getting mystic experiences? It's a right. really good book. And they say it's almost semi-autobiographical. I can believe that. So by the mm -hmm. time Crowley had split off and, and left the golden dawn and his buddy Bennett went with him, um, they were just, they had kind of Bennett got him heavy into drugs. And mm -hmm. so he was, he was, he would do things. There was a legend of a story where um, Crowley walked into a room and uh, sorry, I just want to pause one thing. Sure. Crowley, Crowley also got into Eastern mysticism as well. And so he got into things that most Westerners didn't understand. So he got into things like yoga mm -hmm. and all of these kind of things. And so he brought a lot of interesting stuff back and forth and kind of merged Western and Eastern mysticism in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of used to pretend he was like some weird Swami guy who would, you know, would sit and he was like an incarnation of Buddha or whatever. And there's a story about him going into someone's house and pooping on their floor and telling them that the aroma of his feces would help them be enlightened in this kind of stuff. I mean, okay, I, think was, then. I think he was just doing things to mess with people. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes there was definitely um, there was definitely things Crowley was doing to just kind of. Um, to just kind of prove that he could. Mm. Um, there's definitely like a bit of a megalomaniac idea of him kind of, you know, or a narcissistic idea of him. Um, right. That's there. At the same time, there's another level of him, which was really trying to find a different way to connect with the world and with people. And he ended up finding this weird island in, in off the coast of Italy, I believe. I'd have to mm -hmm. look this up to be sure of this. Um, but and he ended up forming the Order Templi Orientis out there, and a couple of, and Thelema, which is in the, his his belief structure. He believed he was communicating with angels. He believed he was talking to spirits. He believed he was, um, you know, you know. F fast forward back that a hundred years backwards, and Joseph Smith the day did the same thing and founded the Mormon religion. 
Yes. Yeah. I did. mean, really. And Crowley was doing almost the exact same thing, talking to mm. unseen spirits that no one ever could talk to. And he had names for them and had all these kind of stuff. Um, I think one was called Ayahuasca, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And um, so he had all these things he was doing. He, but, but in order to disappear off to an island and try to help people become enlightened, um, there's a certain dedication to your ideology. And I, I think it ceased being about being a popular, important thing. And I think he definitely, towards the end, really just wanted to find a way to connect to the world. Mm. I really do believe it. I don't think he was evil. I don't think there was a lot about him evil. You have to understand Crowley's parents were like, like absolute Christian, um, you know, devout Christians. And the reason he was called the beast is because they called him the beast because he rejected their religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot, you know, Crowley was a very misunderstood in a lot of ways. I think um, that said his time in the golden dawn was absolutely a bizarre period of time in, in <laughs> mysticism at all. But like I said, my quest to find out did Satanism start with Aleister Crowley? Mm-hmm. My ultimate answer was no. And, and was Aleister Crowley somebody to fear? And my answer was no. So, mm, well, is that maybe now, for your carpet? Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So now what do I do with this, right? Mm. You know, to this day, and I, I don't know, I think the last guy, I'd have to look it up, but I think the guy just died. But Crowley really wanted this, this Temple of Thalama and, and the, the Order Templary Antis and all these things to continue going on. Like he didn't envision them as leaving when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he died in 1947. So, I mean, he's been dead a long time. Um, but before he died, he told two people that they would be in charge of the Order Templary Orientis. Mm-hmm. And up until the early 90s, those guys were still fighting over who was in charge of it. <laughs> right, of course. I mean, they were just absolutely like he told me. No, he told me. There is giant legal documents that exist out there mm-hmm. where the two guys list every reason why they believe they're the thing and why they have what they have. And Alistair signed this piece of paper that said I could have it. And the other guy's saying, no, I can have it. It's really fascinating stuff when you look at it. But I think Alistair was just kind of a dick. I think he told two people <laughs> they were both in charge. It's really funny. It's hard to say, right? I mean, you know, it's hard. It, I, I think he just wanted to make sure it didn't die. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't I, I mean, I, 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 there's discussion that he was he was having sex at that point in time with different people. Men, women didn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of stories about it. None of it's really been tr- proven necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but he definitely had a very um, he tried to create a new way of looking at things. It was quite interesting. And he did believe in sex magic. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he had a lot of stuff going on. So drunk and laid, I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> he did. And so again, was that because he, you know, I guess you mix that in drugs yeah. and, and that's what you get out of it. And so, um, you know, maybe there's some Kama Sutra tried in there. Maybe there's some different things. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, he was, um, he had a lot of weird stuff going on there. Okay. Well, yeah. I, yeah, sorry, don't go. Oh, I was going to say, because you're kind of hitting at something that I think gets uh, neglected when people discuss things like this. Because you talked about Anton LaVey and the, the, the Church of Satan. Yeah. And it really was. It was it was a, a big counterculture thing because I've read different treatises that they said 
they're technically atheists, but they adopted the image of Satan because he rebelled against God and they rebel against religion in general. Correct. When you talk about the Golden Dawn and, and that whole era of especially like a British mysticism, a lot of these things, they started out, they weren't people plumbing the secrets of the universe. They were like a club and people mm. would hang out and talk about things that, would, that were interesting and that would transform over time and with membership. Um, you would even mentioned uh, Wicca, which a lot of people in the modern era trace back to the ancient Druids, but realistically only goes back to like the late 1800s. Well, it goes to Gardner started. Gerald Gardner really is the godfather of Wicca, and that didn't start until mm. like 1930. Okay. Yeah, but he appropriated some of these different ideas. And then as, as you get time moving on, you get these weird intellectual drifts where different things get ascribed and disascribed, I guess, to the core value and what that core concept was changes. And you can go, like maybe that in a lot of ways is what Crowley did, is he started as a guy at one of these clubs, and then he kind of saw something in it, and then you add a little bit of drugs, and then he actually started down this this earnest, like mystic route to see how the universe works but it all started from him arguing with uh who is who is the guy in the golden dawn that he argued with all the time well mcgregor mathers mainly yeah. was the main guy that he fought with all the time yes yeah and then you get the impression he did his own thing just to piss that guy off to a certain degree but then it leads somewhere totally totally like different absolutely and yeah i mean like the oto is really the um, and he got the OTO from somebody else. That was another, the Odor Templiorantis came from another guy who he was starting that group up and then Crowley kind of jumped in and took over that one. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, it's really difficult to be able to go back because scholarship and Crowley didn't really exist. I think people just looked at him as some weirdo. So it's not like you can go back. He didn't write letters to people. He didn't, there's not a lot of stuff you can go. He did write autobiography, so you can learn a little bit about him. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's not a lot you can really figure out to understand his motives behind what he said, other than what's there. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like you said, it's, is it, is it counterculture? Is it, is it egotism? Is it mystic? Is it just the quest to find a way to connect to the universe? And, you know, you know, one of the things, you know, I mean, in, um, in, uh, the French call an orgasm, petite more, right. The little death. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and so, and so again, understanding that and thinking that that's kind of a close to godliness idea kind of thing. Is it such a reach to understand that if someone is talking, you know, practicing sex magic, for example, that mm -hmm. they think that connects them closer to God? It's not a big leap, really. Yeah, mm, true. Does that make him the devil? Not really. But to a bunch of Puritan people, absolutely. Yeah. And I have to wonder then, what was it about, like when we get to the 70s and 80s and such, what was it about this particular group that made uh, like the Golden Dawn and uh, the Satanism and all that? What was it about that that really caught the American and Western consciousness. Like, I mean, they can't have been the only people that were doing this stuff. Why them? Was it just random? 
I don't know. It's really, how do you mean? Like, as far as when, when it became like the satanic panic kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. When, it, when the satanic panic came around, why was it them in particular that the public and the consciousness all decide to focus on as opposed to, I mean, there must've been other people doing this kind of stuff. They're not, they're not alone. You know what? I, 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 I've never done enough research in that to really ask that question. I think at the time it was a very difficult question to ask mm. um, because we didn't have the media connected the way it was to this day. Right. Um, I think, you know, if you really look deep into it, it was a clear agenda of the talk show host to scare people yeah, in some way yeah. or another. Yeah. And it created re re viewings. And I think if we really look at it, I think when you look at like Donahue and the people that had the initial Satanists on their shows, mm. they had a lot of viewership. And yeah. I think those things actually drove it. I, I think it was just coming up with an idea saying, what's wacky can we put on here today? And then you give some counterculture guy a stage and they're going to tell you whatever you want. That's yeah. true. You know, okay. when you mix it into things like Ozzy biting bats off, heads off bats and all this kind of stuff going on and the some of the imagery that that was going on in that period, I think it just feeds into that ideology. Right. Well, I mean, because there was in the 1970s, I mean, even before the satanic panic, which didn't happen until the 80s, even the 70s, there was that whole wave, just waves of uh, belief in mysticism and Absolutely. In, in our society and that time. I mean, yep. I was, you, we were, of course, too young to remember this or really you know about it, but you can see it was there. Like, I mean, most of the, the whole devil panic and that, like uh, Satanism panic, a lot of it actually was happening in the 70s. Yes, it was. Yeah, there was, there yeah. was Satanism. The Satanic panic we're talking about was the 80s wave of it, but there was 70s Satan, Satanism panics too. Yeah, and nobody really cared about it then. Yeah, well, they, I think what happened was uh, when you look at, the 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 60s and the 70s you had a lot of societal changes like we talked mm -hmm. about that you had different groups that prior to then it was okay to just kind of poop on and nobody would say anything but now they were asserting themselves we had the idea of equal rights you had the idea of like minority rights um even the gays were getting a little notoriety which if you actually remember the 60s and the 70s is a big deal because everybody thought gays were just rampaging murderous pedophiles mm. and all of these different people, because you had the idea in the 60s of discontent with how society was running. Mm -hmm. And that came kind of from the young. And part of that was because they didn't want to go to Vietnam and die for a cause they didn't really understand. And when you get to, to, to the 80s, like a lot of the mysticism of the 70s, I think it again, it was it was counterculture. It was the Anton LaVey Satanism. It was how do we people have this need for something bigger than themselves, but they weren't happy with the typical, you know, God is an old guy in a robe with a beard. Well, no, God is nature. God is locked in these crystals. There is no God. And when you get what codifies that into the satanic panic was going into the, uh, going into the eighties, you saw the Republicans in the States court the religious right. Cause prior to then, the religious type stayed the hell out of politics. They thought it was dirty. They wanted nothing to do with it. But they get involved. Reagan gets elected kind of on the crest of that wave. And then that idea, because the media, especially the entertainment media, like the talk shows, which were the the uh, YouTube and, and uh, Facebook of, of the day, They'll take an idea and they run with it. It becomes what they call the zeitgeist, the general idea. But ultimately, it's marketing because you want 
you don't want to overwhelm your audience with a lot of different ideas and perspectives. You pick whatever the big thing is, and then you run with it. And then that's what they did, because you had this rise in traditional religion, and you also had some counterculture stuff that got entwined with being the opposite, like the Dungeons and Dragons thing. That became mm-hmm. like, it originally wasn't a satanic issue. Um, uh, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons was more a social thing. It was the woman whose whose son killed himself and she blamed the game. Mm-hmm. But then everybody would ascribe whatever it was that they thought was bad to it. And at the time it was whatever's not Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing like the uh, the the panic over heavy metal. It didn't start as it's evil and satanic. It started as it's subversive and violent. But then the satanic thing gets gets thrown in because that was just everything evil that's and, and wrong and bad we label. And then it gets like what uh, Dave was saying there. The talk mm-hmm. shows were a big part because I know Anton LaVey and especially his daughter at the time used the talk shows for publicity. So they'd show up and they'd be all dressed and she'd look like Morticia Adams, except I think she was blonde at the time mm-hmm. anyway. And they would espouse their thing and it'd be like, boo, you suck, boo. And everybody at home that was like fed up with, you know, like the the oldster kind of thing and looking to rebel and go, yeah, look at how pissed off the old people are. I'm going to do that. And then it mm-hmm. it blows up. It 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 becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, as an example, I go with like the metal route. It wasn't until after we found out it was satanic that you had groups like King Diamond and Venom that would play up that kind of angle. Or and Black again, Sabbath. Well, yeah, but Black Sabbath talked about, like, the devil, but the devil was something to be feared. But mm. Black Sabbath talked a lot about God. There yeah, are songs they... about being saved. I mean, they mm. were... They have, they have absolutely songs about being saved by God, and the only way you're going to survive is by Jesus. I mean, they were, they were not, it's funny, they, in imagery, they were satanic in a sense, but in mm-hmm. actual reality, they were anything but. Mm-hmm. But it gets, very, very Christian. Yeah, but it gets sucked into that idea, and then once you're painted with that brush, there's, there's no turning back. Right. It's also marketing. It is. It's marketing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I guess... Well, but that makes sense, actually. Yeah, that would be their counter. Like, no, no, we're seeing songs about Jesus, even right. though we're doing that. Of course, they're talking about, of course, they're talking about the Savior. But which Savior is it? I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, no, fair enough. You're right. Um, I, 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 I wish I could kidding. think of the song off the top of my head to tell you what song it is, because it's, uh, it's absolutely, listen to it sometime and you'll go, what the heck? I didn't know Black Sabbath sang about Jesus. Um, <laughs> I'll see if I can find it while we're talking. I imagine they were a decent bunch of Christian boys at heart. (laughs) Yeah, because that was where the idea of the crosses on the stage. I was watching Mm -hmm. the interview with uh, with uh, with the guys in the band and they said somebody had had given them like these big crosses for good luck. Mm -hmm. And then ever since that that person done it and they wore them on stage, that became a thing. But it was yeah, it wasn't really they weren't doing it ironically. It was just. Mm -hmm. They like, were actually doing it. It's just the way it worked out. It's that's the way it worked out. Yeah. Now, but did they have them upside down on stage, or did they have them right side up? I would. I think they had them right side up. Yeah, I don't remember the Black Sabbath having because the upside down thing. Like I say, that sort of comes later after you get the 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 hearings and that because uh, before the PMRC, 
mm-hmm. music had to kind of toe the line. Like I could be like all scandalous, but I had to dress it up. And right. then it, it was after you started putting the, the warning labels on things, then the floodgates are open because I can do whatever the hell I want. And as long as I have a parental advisory sticker, whatever, you know. So I found the song I was talking about, by the way, from Black Sabbath, mm-hmm. just from context. Sure. So it's a song called After Forever. Um, okay. Lyrics go, have you ever thought about your soul? Can it be saved? Or perhaps you think you're, when you're dead, you just stay in the grave. Is God just a thought within your head or is he part of you? Is Christ just a name that you read in a book when you were in school? Uh, when you think about death, do you lose your brain? Do you keep your cool? Uh, would you like to see the Pope on the end of a rope? Do you think he's a fool? Well, I have seen the truth. Yes, I've seen the light. I've changed my ways. I'll be prepared when you're lonely and scared at the end of our days. Um, and the chorus is, could it be that you're afraid of what your friends might say if you knew that if they knew you believe in God above? Should you? They should realize before they criticize that God is the only way to love. Well, that's, that's, that's a that's Black a Sabbath song. song. That's not even <laughs> not even a debate. <laughs> Mm, okay so there you go just a little little context now was that one of their first songs or did that come later on when did that come i want to say that was around 76 in that area somewhere Mm. and because i'd have to wonder i somehow don't suspect that comes from the aussie biting heads off bats days well aussie bite his heads off days was after that yeah Yeah, that's my point yeah yeah that was after that that's my point. I, you know, there's a certain point where they shifted and they basically, hey, this Satanism stuff sells tickets. All oh, right, sorry, then. that was ni- 1971. That song was on. Wow. So that's got to be one of their early. That's one of their uh, early albums. Masters of Reality, actually. Okay. So it's the third album, I think, third or fourth, third album. Yeah. Okay. So that's not super early, but it is early. Okay. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There you go. Just a little thing. So yeah, you know, again, it's what are people presenting versus what they're doing, and again, yeah, right. it takes, you got to listen to what it is, right? So. So I like, yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting pathway when you kind of look at it all and how it all develops and what right. you look at, when you go back and look at Crowley and you see where he got his influences from, and then you start to go backwards. Mm-hmm. I think what you start to see is I, a lot like Don said, the history of mysticism is about a group of people collecting together for some specific reason. Mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. no one else knows about. And right. I think the difference between what happened with the Golden Dawn when 20 or 30 or 40 people got together mm-hmm. versus what happened in the 80s is we had media then. Yeah. And people knew about that stuff and nobody knew anything about the Golden Dawn when it was happening. Yeah. Right. There were some famous people in it. I mean, W.B. Yates was one of the members of it. Um, there was a number of other people, Arthur Mackin, Bram Stoker, briefly, apparently, um, and some other people. Um, mm. but, but they didn't walk around going, I'm a member of the Golden Dawn. They did it as a kind of a secretive thing themselves. Right, right. And the only reason we know about it is because some of the members later on talked about it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because I think uh, when you talk about how hard it was back in the day to find anything on CrowleyNet, I think it was because a lot of these different groups – it it was if if they were still in like the boys club area, you didn't want people knowing what you were getting in like what you were doing because you didn't want more people joining. You know, it's the no homers club thing, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when they started down the more more mystic or more scholarly routes, it was that idea you didn't want other people cribbing your notes, and it was all very very secretive. And mm-hmm. and that's why for a long time you couldn't find info in any of this stuff because it was all very jealously guarded for one reason or another. 
Well, right. and funny enough, I was telling Ainsley in the car that one of the, the re- I said, you know, I was actually telling both the girls, I said, you know, it's funny, you know, back in the 1400s, you could get killed for talking about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you talked about mysticism, if you wanted to talk about something that was not Catholic in Western Europe at any time after the 1400s, you risked your life. Yeah. yeah. And, and I true. think, and so, you know, I think it became very, um, it, you had to be secretive. There was no way you could, and ha- then, you know, you just even that into the same problem of how do you, how do you, um, how do you come up with a way to talk about things um, and not get caught by the, the, you know, the Catholic police kind of thing. Mm. Really. Um, and I, and I think that's kind of the way these things, I mean, there's a reason you're only seeing sporadic people, why you don't see giant groups. It would have been impossible for groups, large groups of people to get together, um, prior to the 1800s. And I was thinking about this in the car driving around and I was, you know, one of, one of the reasons why I think the golden dawn existed is because at a time period of the 1800s, late 1800s, you could, you know, mm-hmm. you're, that was the beginning of a time period where people actually had free time on their hands. Yeah, very true. Really, yeah, you know, that's, you know yeah. it's just after the Industrial Revolution, and it's the first time where people actually had time on their hands to do these kind of meaningless things <laughs> or meaningful <laughs> things, depending in their head, whatever you want to look at it. Yep, um, right. that's true. They, they had I, time to be able to get together. Yeah, you're exactly right. They would go to the factories, and they would work, and then they suddenly, depending on what class you were and everything, you actually had some leisure times. You could actually think about stuff like this, and you had books right. all over the place and magazines. This was a great age of publishing that most people don't yeah. realize either. So, and, literacy, and literacy. Exactly, and yeah. literacy. Exactly <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. So actually, I wanted to ask you, Dave, um, where does the idea that the Masons are all connected with mysticism come from? So... I can tell you this from two perspectives. First okay. of all, I have been a Mason for 22 years myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a, as, a, as a Mason, I can speak to, you know, obviously I can't tell you ritual and stuff, but I can speak to what isn't in it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And I'll tell you that from the very basic standpoint, from a Masonry perspective, mm. the actual core of Freemasonry, and so you kind of have to understand that Freemasonry in its initial form starts in 1717 when the Grand Lodge um, kind of comes into existence. It, mm-hmm. um, prior to that, exists possibly for about another hundred years prior to that, um, beginning somewhere in the Scottish, uh, high, you know, in the Scottish building guilds and these kind of things. Um, that's kind of where scholars think it all happened from. Um, we mm. know it was well established by 17 and 1717 enough that they're like, okay, let's come out to the public kind of thing. Um, so what was the very, purpose of the Masonic Lodge when they first created this stuff? What was um, the whole point? So I've done a lot of looking into that ideology or into that. And uh, not just as a um, – when I was in the – well, I'm still a Mason. But when I was very, very active in, in London mm-hmm. um, with my lodge, I was uh, the education person for several years. And so okay. I used to kind of have to go do research and learn things and teach something every, every time we had a meeting. And mm-hmm. so I would, so I would look at the history of things because I really wanted to know. I wanted to understand what I was a part of. Mm-hmm. And so we think that what happened. A lot of scholars believe that it was really a way to create some gravitas to to a lot of the building efforts that happened in the fifteen and sixteen hundreds in England. Because of course, lots got built, lots of castles, lots of different things mm-hmm. got built, and it was a way to kind of 
make the builders feel special in a sense. They created okay. these, these little groups of themselves and created these little secret, you're going to be building this church or this castle or whatever it is, and we're going to bring you into our secret society. And I think it was probably something in the general idea of fun just at the beginning level. I know there's lots of theories that perhaps the Knights of St. John or the different the Knights Templar and all these things got into it. I, I think it's a little bit of the opposite. I think what happened was I think the group existed first and then they started mm. looking for things to pull into it. I don't, I, I, I see no evidence that these groups continue to exist. Um, and one of the things that I found in my research is that the history of mysticism, and this goes back, if you even go back to like 300 BC, if you go back to the beginnings of hermeticism, mm-hmm. um, and, and the Ptolemy periods of, of, um, of Egypt mm-hmm. that you, this is a this is a thing of finding and losing and finding and losing and rediscovering. And so it's kind of like, you know, a couple of hundred years pass and some guy gets a hold of some books and translates them and then reinvigorates some people. And so this is kind of a cycle that happens over a period mm-hmm. of time. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, the printing press is starting out. People are starting to access, having access to information. Um we would have none of that had all the different, you know, we got to give credit where credit's due to a lot of the Catholic priests who spent a lot of time transcribing and translating things that they found mm-hmm. um, and lost literature and bringing them forward into a new generation. Um, and so I think, you know, when these lodges got together, they got together probably as just this general sense of brotherhood and perhaps the boys club or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, again, building was a noble trade back in that day. Yeah. You know, it was looked at as a very noble trade that you had this craftsmanship, um, like a lot of craftsmanship was. And so, but then it got into the Scottish royalty. And I think people were like, well, um, you know, you remember that every country had like their architect. Um, it'd be like the head of the building, right? Mm-hmm. I can't think of the name they had. Well, they would want to be a part of this kind of thing. So all you need is one royal guy to get involved in this club. And then he tells his friends, right? Ultimately, you know, that's really what it is. And then they go, Hey, you know what? Why don't we, why don't we go and, and take this to another, um, into a figurative sense because in masonry, there's a lot of referrals to, um, real masonry versus speculative masonry. Mm -hmm. And so you change from, from stories talking about actually building things to building yourself as a human and building yourself as a man. Mm-hmm. And so that's the transformation in masonry is you change the changes, the, the, all the things change from, okay, I'm a builder and I'm going to talk about building this, this, um, this temple, or I'm going to build this church and I'm going to use, you know, this is an ancient craft and you're a part of it now. Mm-hmm. And now I'm not a builder, but I still want to have, and then I still want to feel it. So now what am I building? I'm building a better person. And then you start to change it around. You start to take building tools. You turn them into other things. You make them represent other things. And that eventually becomes what you know as Freemasonry today. That's that's a really simple version of it. Okay. But that's, that's the best way to put it. And what I'll tell you is mm-hmm. that's what happened to all of these groups is that they pulled things in mm-hmm. to get something that made sense to people. Um, right. And so I think that's where the Knights Templar stuff comes in. And I think that's where the uh, later on the Rosicrucians comes in and all the different groups that come into it. They pull things in that are like-minded experiences, but also are a little bit of fun to, to, to play with, with mm-hmm. imagery. Uh, 
Um, that's kind of the best way I can put it. Um, as a Mason, that's the way I see it. But mm-hmm. that's also, as I see it as a scholar as well. I guess I can call myself a scholar in a sense. Um, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's kind of how I looked at it. Um, and, and it's interesting because each of the groups followed a similar pathway. Mm-hmm. So if you go backwards to Rosicrucianism, um, Rosicrucian started sometime in the 1600s, roughly. Um, so there was a very anti-Pope document that got created mm-hmm. um, in and around the 1600s um, mm-hmm. that was creating a fake person, essentially, mm-hmm. called Kristen Rosencruz. And it was alleged to be by this guy named Kristen Rosencruz. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's interesting about it is so that gets published, um, the Fama Fraternitatis, it's called. And it's very anti-Pope. It actually talks about how much they hate the Pope and how much he's no good and how much he's, um, how much they need to get away from him. Um, there's some very anti-Catholic stuff, but in the 1600s, you could get away with that, right? You were allowed mm-hmm. to talk about that in the 1600s. Followed the following year by the Confessio Fraternitatis, which happens to come around with... Um, again a bit more anti-catholic stuff and a bit more of a kind of call to arms in a sense about a better way to do things and almost a a more pure way to be a christian if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um and then later on the chemical wedding of christian rosicruz where it starts to pull into um a lot of alchemical ideologies and understand alchemy as we know it say in 200 bc versus which is kind of like alchemy at that time was early science Mm -hmm. Alchemy in the 1600s and 1500s was actually a complex way to talk about God without talking about God. So you can have alchemical discussions, but you're not actually talking about turning um, lead into gold. You're talking about turning the human soul into going to heaven. And you can have these debates and discussions, and alchemy was a way to master language. Um, and so I mean, not always, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was ways where they talked about this stuff and people really believed they could turn lead into gold. Um, right. and we're trying very hard to do it because they didn't understand what was actually being said, but alchemy, a lot of what it was written in the alchemist stuff was, was code words to talk about what they needed to talk about in some ways. And then people then took it and made it something else afterwards. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting with the Frama Fraternitatis and the Confessio and all these things are, Immediately, people start um, publishing things saying, I want to join. Who are you? How do I find you? I want to be a Rosicrucian too. Mm-hmm. And the problem is they don't find anybody because it was never a group. It never existed. Even though it says it is, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like a like – it, um, it was an allegory for you know, talking about life, the universe, and everything kind of thing, I guess. Um, and the state of this guy's opinion on religion. Um, mm-hmm. And he created a movement, even though he wasn't part of the movement, if that makes sense. Right. So what's, what mm-hmm. you start seeing is guys like Robert Flood, Michael Meyer, and all these people from the 1600s, I think Thomas Vaughn's another name. I'm just looking at my, my bibliography thing here. And all of those people found find each other because what happens is they start publishing things saying, well, we think the Fama Fraternity, or the, you know, the Rosicrucians are great. We want to be a member. We want to join. Well, guess what happens? They don't find it. And then they find each other. Did you get a hold of them? Did you get a hold of them? I haven't gotten a hold of them. No one's gotten a hold of me. And eventually they found each other and they actually created Ros- the Rosicrucian order out of nothing. Using so it's a bunch the ins- of 
Rosicrucian sure. fanboys, basically, have, have created their own fan group that becomes the actual <laughs> Rosicrucians. That's exactly what happened. And I, I wish there was another way to do it. They don't even really know who wrote The Farm of Return House. We think we know who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy named Johan Valentin Andrea who they think wrote it, but we're not sure. Yeah, cool like, that's name. what they think. I, I go with him. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> um, so that's what they think happened. And so all of these people then went on to kind of find each other. And the Rosicrucians actually went on to become a very long-standing fraternity that still exists to this day in a bunch of different forms. Um, I actually at one point in time talked to the head of By Accident. Um, and mm. I'll, I'll, I should tell that story later, actually. Mm. But um, <laughs> because uh, Don might remember. No, you wouldn't. I was in London by then when it happened. Mm. Um, and so you might not, you wouldn't have heard this one. Mm-hmm. I guess I can tell oh. it now. It doesn't matter. Go we don't ahead. have to go in any concentric order. Yeah. <laughs> so again, this just gives you an idea of how you how different researching is nowadays then occurred to now. So I was reading a book, um, and so there's a, a group of uh, Rosicrucians that exist, the Rosicrucian Order, out of um, Euphrata, Pennsylvania, I believe they are. And so the Rosicrucian Order, they called themselves the Triple Order because they were kind of three different groups that combined together. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten some books, and they, what I used to find in London was fantastic. And, um, you know, Western doesn't just let you go in the library and take books all the time. But I had a, I wasn't even a, a student at Western, but I wrote a letter telling them why I wanted to be a member of the library. Mm-hmm. And then they gave me a library card for the purposes of research, which was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, that's I cool. felt pretty special. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably easier now, but back then they were like, you can't take books out. And I'm like, well, what do I need to do to get you to trust me? So I had to make a proposal of why I wanted to take books out. So mm-hmm. I found this book. And I think it was um, from like 1875 or something like that. Nice, good old book. Mm. And so I was looking, um, I was working midnights and I was reading this book and I was trying to find out if these people existed. And I called information, again, this is how old this is, mm-hmm. to try and find <laughs> the publisher to see if the publisher still existed. So here's me, I'm 20 something years old. I'm placing a call to information to find out if the publisher of a book that was published in 1875 still exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Okay. And so they say, yes, we have, they said, so I remember the operator talking to me and saying, I have two numbers for that name. Mm-hmm. Would you like the, this number? Or would you like the main number? And I said, well, I'll take the main number. And so she gives me the numbers and at, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, I place a phone call. I did. And I, hi, my name is Dave Towers. I am a, uh, I'm researching the Rosicrucian order. I wanted to know if the Rosicrucian order still exists and that the triple order still exists. And I'd like some information. Mm-hmm. And um, I get a phone call the next morning at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. I'd been, I was sleeping. I get this phone call and I, it's this kind of, older voice and he's like hello can i speak to david towers and i'm like this is david Towers speaking and he said this i'll never forget his name and i've looked him up since and i know he was the head of this group mm-hmm. this is dr ge posenecker um you you left a voicemail for me on my answering machine <laughs> so they the main number was the head of the rosicrucians <laughs> <laughs> and somehow i called information and got his phone number right and so i said um, yeah, I'm, I'm half asleep at this point, right? Because I was working nights. 
And I said, I, I have some questions, you know, I wanted to know, does the triple order <laughs> still exist? And he says, of course, they, you don't think a society that's existed for over 300 years would just disappear, do you? <laughs> I said, well, no, I guess not. Can you tell me more? And he said, I'll tell you what, if you, here's my address, you send me a letter and you tell me why you want to, why you want to be a part of, you know, that you want to be a part of us and I'll tell you anything you need to know. Um, and this was probably around that time that we were discussing joining different groups and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I might have still been in the Windsor at that point in time. I can't remember. Um, I, th- I think you were, because this was around the time where, like, me and Doak fully expected one day to show up at your apartment, and it'd be somebody who we'd never heard of going, <laughs> oh, I've lived here for 15 years. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I would just disappear. Yeah, because yeah, I th- th- does that story ring a bell, Don? Yes, it does, because I yes, remember okay. you, because you, you were totally obsessed with the uh, Rosicrucians for a while. Yes, it, they're a really fascinating group. So the principle behind the Rosicrucians is this. They believe they're like the 12 disciples of Jesus. And what they believe is their job is to, um, is to heal people and to go around and help people out. And with, by whatever means necessary. So that mm. means it might be financial, it might be physically, it might be emotionally or whatever. And so the idea is there's only 12 members that exist at any given time in the original version of this. Mm. And that when one member dies, they replace themselves with a, a successor. So that's a pretty exclusive club, right? Hold, and, hold on and, a sec. Sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt for one moment. So, but you said this was the result of three different groups joined together. So did each of those three groups have 12 people? No, but that was, so understand that's, that, that's what the fake. So the, the Fama Fraternitatis creates this in, in, in story, right? Of mm-hmm. these members and these people. Right. It's a story of them finding this thing and they pretend Chris and Rosa Cruz is a real gra- guy right. and all this kind right. of stuff. And so the story that he creates is that there's only 12 people. This okay, imagery that he has is this is a secret society where only 12 people exist. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the 12 people never existed. They, did, right. they didn't exist at all. And so more people get along. So it never went to a place where there's only 12 people because way more than 12 people wanted to be a part of this, right? It's too cool. So, yeah. so it sounds like what happened is in the early days of the Americans, people coming to the United States of America, Freemasons and Rosicrucians came to America. Mm-hmm. So by the time the declarative declaration of independence kicks in and when they write the declaration of independence both freemasons and rosicrucians are quite active Mm -hmm. however people know about the freemasons and don't know much about the rosicrucians Mm -hmm. rosicrucians kept themselves somewhat secret the book i was reading was actually about a rosicrucian who was present at the declaration of independence when they were um doing all the things and creating this rebellion Mm-hmm. And how the Rosicrucians were involved, and and in the story, a center point of inspiring the revolution to happen and inspiring the Declaration of Independence to happen, and that's what the book was, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really plays up this presence that you didn't know this, but a hundred years later, we're going to tell you. And really, 1776, 1875, right? A hundred years later, we're going to let you know that we were involved in this too. Mm. That we know people were Masons then, but you didn't know Rosicrucians were there too. Well, Masons were Um, busy tagging everything with their symbols, so it wasn't hard to know the Masons were there. That's Mm. right. And the the Rosicrucians weren't. 
So they stayed in Philadelphia and they developed. So what's interesting is as they developed in time, what's uh, the Rosicrucians kind of went in different directions, lots mm-hmm. of different directions. So one guy took it to California, another guy, um, took it to California also and put Egyptology into it and changed it into something else entirely. That's the ancient, uh, the AMORC, they call it A-M-O-R-C. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember if that's the one you or Doke joined. I think that's the one Doke joined. Okay. Um, AMORC. And that, they were interesting. Um, I found a whole collection of stuff of the treasurer of London, from London, Ontario, or mm-hmm. the minute taker. I can't remember. He had passed away and I found his books that someone, he lived in my apartment building and someone just took all his books and stuck them in a box. And I was walking out the door one day and I saw this box and it was filled with Rosicrucian stuff. And I went, I know what that is. And I took it all and I read it all. <laughs> and, and I got an entire history of what happened in Rosicrucian because there was a, mem- a temple and a group chapter in London, Ontario for a long time, starting hmm. in the 1940s. And I got the whole history of what happened to that group from reading all these books. Um, right. Again, very lucky, right? Mm-hmm. Very. Um, but this is kind of where I went with stuff. So... Um, what's interesting is I never, ever actually messaged Dr. Posnecker because I really just, what I needed to know is it still existed. Right. Mm -hmm. And I needed to know that that thing was still there because as Don pointed out, I was obsessed with finding out the story. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know where things landed and how things got from point A to point B. So I was really interested in the story of in 1611, Valentin or Andrea writes the, Fama Fraternitatis, and then he mm-hmm. writes the Confessio, and then he writes Chemical Wedding, and he disappears. What happened to that? And how did that come to the future? And how did it get there? And why did it get there? And how did it stay alive? And why do people still care about it? Um, mm. You know, all these kind of things. Mm. And that was really my thirst was, because it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's kind of, I guess it's like opening up a tomb, like, like, mm. uh, Lord Carnarvon and, you know, in, uh, in, in Tut's tomb and find, not knowing what you're going to find and then finding more and more and more and more. Um, and that's really what this whole journey for me was and is, I guess, um, mm. reinvigorated now, I suppose, um, mm. is about finding out, you know, more so why does it matter now? Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I think some of it has to do with the fact that I think history informs us to maybe what's going to happen. Um, and how things develop and how things move. Um, because I think if you can see the origins of an idea and how they develop into another idea and what that idea becomes, you can look at now and go, here's this idea. What's that going to be in 200 years? Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. So that was a lot of the reasons why I kept going backwards. And so right. once I got that story done, I'm like, okay, I finished that story. I know that the Rosicrucians started here and now there's these three groups and here's their origins and here's why they are what they are. And here's what they're doing now, which is nothing like that was before. I can see how it morphed. I can see how it transformed. I can see why it transformed. I can see all the arms stretching out in all the different places. I can see the power struggles and how the leader of this group got kicked out. And then he went and started another group because he's pissed off because he has a better idea of how to run it now Mm -hmm. Um, and how people create new out of old. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, and, and again, I think that's um, part of the whole thing is just how it all developed. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So you definitely developed a very good understanding of where all this stuff came from. 
So right. at least in, that's that's just taking us to the Middle Ages, right? Or into right, the right. Into, or, or not Middle Ages, sixteen hundreds. So right. Okay. Okay. That's wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> this yeah, starts in three hundred BC. We're yeah. We're not going to go there. That's too deep no. down the rabbit hole even for our, this show. Okay. <laughs> um, Okay, and so this all kind of, how does this all come to a head then in the 1970s and 80s with the satanic panic? So I think that, um, again, I, I, to put it easily, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I guess it does and it doesn't. How it comes to a head in the satanic panic is I understood where all this stuff comes from and how things get warped. Mm -hmm. Because... Matt and Don mentioned McGregor Mathers. So McGregor Mathers, the problem I think you have is that really where it starts is the 1800s because from all intents and purposes, what you can figure out is that a lot of people made a lot of stuff up in the 1800s. Um, you know, I, there's a book called a giant 12 volume series by JD Fraser called the golden bow. And the golden bow is kind of like the, the Bible of magic, if you will. Um, and then you go like into the 1870s and Eliphaz Levi, who is the first guy to turn the pentagram upside down and say, this is the symbol of the devil. Mm -hmm. um, and then tells people this is the symbol of the devil. Now, it doesn't exist in anything else. He made that up. Mm -hmm. So why does he make this up? What's the whole point of it? Because he wanted to be a guy to make it up. So right. it's really hard to tell all of the things that come f that start has origins in some kind of weird obfuscation of facts um, where it's all kind of, you take it and you hide stuff from where its origins are, or you blur the lines or you tell people you found some secret book that no one else had. Um, I mean, Mathers did that. He found this book called uh, uh, Abramel and the mage. Um, and he made some fake history of this guy and said he found it and nobody knew it existed before. And I think you take all these things and you manipulate them. Mm -hmm. And so, and so in, when you go back, if you want to look at just a simple thing, um, the, the Kabbalah, which is another influence in all this, absolutely believe that you interacted with demons and devils and angels to get through the gates of heaven to get to God. Like that mm -hmm. was, that was codified in that book. I mean, there's actually like pathways and lessons to say, you go through this gate and you talk to this guy and this guy's name is this and this guy's name is that. I mean, it's very, very detailed. Wow. Um, and so you take all this stuff and you bring it forward and, and it gives it a little bit of gravitas. It gives it a little bit of, a little bit of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? A little bit Wait. of credit, credibility, okay, okay. credibility. Yeah. Yes. Yep. It gives a little bit of credibility to what you're doing. So everything's operating on a, on a portion of truths or mm -hmm. on a, a simplicity, you know, a, a, a segment of truths that go on. And so when you bring it to say panic, panic, I think what's more important than satanic panic is what happened after satanic panic. Mm -hmm. okay. Because when the satanic panic went away, mm -hmm. we took the devil part out of it, but all this other stuff still stayed around. Mm, true. Because, okay. you know, I would argue you know, Harry Potter is a great example where, you know, we thought magic's cool, right? Mm -hmm. And and this stuff is, and people can, so somehow it morphs from let's be afraid of 
magic and people manipulating the universe to, hey, isn't it cool that people can, ma can manipulate the universe again? And so it, it doesn't take that long for that to change. And I think when you look at shows like Supernatural, when you look at, um, I mean, I was talking, um, I watched the show The Order this weekend. And in the, in the show The Order, there's a group called the Hermetic Order of the Blue Rose. Now, I'll tell you, there's no other group that exists in the history of the universe that is called the Hermetic <laughs> Order of anything except for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Mm -hmm. So you definitely have somebody going back and trying to take something from the past and bring it forward to give it some kind of meaning and make it sound cool, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, and I remember I watched it and my first reaction was, okay, so if I'm trying to take over the world with my magical powers, why do I grab a bunch of teenagers to do my bidding? That doesn't make any sense. They're like... Because they're all selfish and stupid, uh, but that's in, what you in, this, in, in this show, and it's just ridiculous. You know, I was watching mm -hmm. it. There's a part where they're walking down the hall trying to sneak through somewhere, and then their cell phone goes off beeping. And I'm like, "What? You're sneaking? Why are you using notifications? Come on!" Like, <laughs> you know, silly things like that. But sorry, I'm digressing here. Um, and no, no, no. Continue. So, you know, how did this develop? <laughs> so in, in the order, the entire series is about the acquisition of an ancient book, which will provide power to him. Mm -hmm. It is exactly this. I mean, it's almost like watching my history in a sense in a different <laughs> version of things, because right. that's what history has been, has been acquiring these old books or claiming to acquire these old books in order to access some kind of power that somehow these ancient books exist that no one else had access to that gives you magical power over the world. Right. And which is really interesting. It is, it's, it's interesting when you talk about um, how symbology changes, I know the idea of the, the pentagram as yep. being something sinister. There are stories that go back to like the ancient Greeks that it was uh, Pythagoras who people know from math class. Yes. That, he studied math because he genuinely believed if you understood something mathematically, you got real world power over it. And the legend is they used the pentagram, him and his followers, because it was um, it, it's, it's a mathematically significant symbol. And they had it tattooed on their palms so they'd know they'd show up at these meetings and, you know, you'd, you'd be all sneaky about it. And this would be like the secret greeting. You'd hold up your hand and they'd know it was you. And that was how this idea of the pentagram being something sinister got started. Like, that's the, the story. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, but even, I mean, the pentagram has been used forever for lots of different groups of people. Mm -hmm. um, from, I mean, the Star David is a pentagram. The, um, you know, lots of groups have used the pentagram for some kind of thing. Um, never used it as evil. It was never looked at as evil. Yeah. Again, it had different versions of it. Um, the upside pentagram is another thing altogether. Yeah, because that was uh, when you get to shoot like the 17, 1800s, one with the master point up was seen as as like a good luck kind of thing. Yeah. And that's why if you go to like old barns and that you'll sometimes see it etched in the wall. And that's but it, it's yeah, it's like you were saying that um, people will go to the past to look for things to validate their present. And a lot of times they'll bring things up only kind of half knowing what it is, it seems like. And then you get all these new weird legends and myths because somebody didn't quite understand what that was supposed to be. Right. You know, it's funny. I remember reading the first Harry Potter book, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know what year that was. 
and in the first Harry Potter book is this is a Nicholas Flamel is discussed. Um, and I remember being so damn excited that <laughs> some I knew who Nicholas Flamel was. I actually have his bibliography sitting here. I knew he was a, a Catholic priest who was a transcriber of mystic books. And so when he got mentioned in there, I went, oh, my God, this person knows what she's talking about. Because there's no possible way she just pulls a name like Nicholas, Nicholas Flamel out of nowhere. Right. She had to have done some research and done some looking into where all this stuff happened and how could things pass on and how could these things exist. It, it sounds so simple, but it gave me like, I'm in. Okay, I'll, mm. I'll listen to whatever this lady has to say because she knows who Nicholas Flamel is. <laughs> It sounds so funny and so silly, but I mean, I was so excited. I mean, probably ask my ex that and she'll probably tell you. I was so beyond um, glad that that kind of came into place, right? Right. Well, it makes sense because I think for myself, um, the first place I'd ever seen mention of a lot of the, like the, like the, 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 the Golden Bow or even Crowley Net was the old Call of Cthulhu role playing game. Yep. That they mentioned That's right, that. yes. Yeah. And then that well, was... Oh, go ahead. Eliphaz Levi is a character, apparently, I, and I have to read it again, but when I was looking at things when I was getting ready for this today, that he's referenced by Lovecraft in uh, maybe the statement of Randolph Carter, uh, mm -hmm. one of those ones he's actually talked about. Oh, it was, yeah, was that or uh, the, the case of Charles Dexter Ward? Maybe that one. That he came up with. Yeah, because that was... Because that's another thing, too, that I... You are um, correct. It's Case of Dog Charles Dexter Ward, yes. Yeah, because Lovecraft and a lot of the weird, like, uh, the Golden Age of the Pulps writers were into the spiritualists from, I guess you'd say, the generation before. Absolutely. And you got to remember, I mean, you know, if Aliphaz Levi died in 1875, you know, you know, Lovecraft's writing 1915 to 1935 or so. So, I mean, he's only 40 years away. He's pretty, he's kind of contemporary almost. <laughs> no, yeah. weren't a bunch of them like, how was it, theosophists? Wasn't that the. Yeah, so theosophy is a whole other thing. So that's Helena Petrova, or Petrova, yeah, Petrova Blavatsky. Um, mm -hmm. So, one of the things that's fascinating about this whole mystical idea is that there's a, some idea that there's some secret brotherhood of overseers that exists. Mm -hmm. And and all of these groups kind of somehow create credibility by saying that um, that some secret order gave them permission to do what they're doing. McGregor's mm -hmm. Mathers used it um, to get credibility to say that the secret masters gave him permission to do this thing. Um, that uh, Diane Fortune, who was in the 1940s, a female mystic, kind of contemporary of Crowley, um, mm -hmm. but because she was a woman, didn't get that much notoriety. Um, said the same thing that she was a secret master um, and she was divulging all this information. There's this idea that somehow these secret people existed for eons. It's where you get the same idea that, you know, people who are Wiccan say that they're a 26th um, generation Wicca person or something along that ideas. It's that this somehow there's this continual unbroken chain of information that exists and that these people are out there controlling it and controlling access to it and all this kind of stuff. Wow. Actually, but what a coincidence. We're actually sponsored by the secret masters too. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Dude, no, it's in our opening. It's in our opening it discussion. It is. Yeah, but, You're right. It is. 
nobody listens to that. If they find out, they'll revoke our charter. Right, right, right. Okay. Sorry, sorry. I hate to tell you. Point to burst your bubble on this one. It didn't happen. <laughs> Actually, if you look at just the very simple train of, um, uh, of, of information that came across, of course, we know what happened in Greece and, and Egypt and the merging of information between Greece and Egypt and Rome and all that kind of stuff going around. And we know that the library of Alexandria was always held up as the place where most of this stuff was. Um, and then it was destroyed allegedly by the, by the Muslim hordes, right? Well, what doesn't, which doesn't come out is the fact that they actually took all the books out before it burnt down. Mm. Yeah. So when you look at something like the Picatrix, um, which is like a Greek version of the, the Corpus Hermetica and all this kind of stuff, um, the Scott, what they did is they gave it to the to the Muslim scholars and said Islamic scholars, or I should say Islamic, and and said transcribe this for me. And then there were Islamic scholars of Kabbalah and Hermeticism, and um, all this kind of stuff continuing on. They're the ones who pass it on ultimately to the to Europe, mm-hmm. um, transmission through Spain and that kind of stuff. Because when right, you look yeah. at the information, um, you know, really it was. It was the Islam that kept education going. And oh, while yeah. the rest of the Dark Ages was going crazy, they were keeping intelligence happening and keeping science going and all this kind of stuff. And then invited people into their schools to come learn things. And then it transmits over that way. And so that's why you got a big yeah. gap from mm-hmm. of information. I mean, it kind of disappears around 300. Well, that's when the barbarian horde started coming around. That makes sense. You know, oh, yeah. 300, yeah. it disappears completely, all this stuff. Comes Actually, back I in think the you're. I think you're. Wait, hold on a sec. No, five hundreds is when the. Uh, no, you're a little bit. Le- no, because no, even Islam only starts about what is it three or four hundred. I yeah, think you're right. actually you're think you're actually getting confused. I think with the because the Mo- the Mongol horde destroys the Islamic civilization or pretty much wipes the caliphates out in like thirteen hundred. That's when the Mongol horde comes and what Genghis Khan's horde shows up and basically wipes everyone off the face of the planet. When did the Library of Alexandria get destroyed? That's okay. I'll I'll I'll, I'll quickly check. But I think Google, that's uh, Google race. Of Alexandria. When did it get destroyed? When did it get destroyed? Um, it got destroyed in where? Quickly what? to the internet. But on, it was, on, it was on, established on. in 246 BC. Okay, we got that. And when was it actually destroyed? Um, Vandalized, demolished in 391 AD under a decree issued by the Coptic Christian Pope. So it actually so it does not seem to have housed books at this time. Okay, so but here's wait that doesn't make any sense. It can't be the Islam at that point because Islam doesn't exist at that point. Interesting. Because Islam, if okay, well, let's, let's double check. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Islam doesn't come around la- until later. Um, I mean, uh, let's see. Islam. 642 is when it got yeah. captured. So Alexander was captured in 642. So I'm off by the the second part. Um, uh, part Muhammad part. existed in 570. Yeah. Okay, or was born in 570. Sorry. So Islam, you know, Islam is basically seventh century. So yeah, it was come and gone by then like islam yeah. was only just a and islam that was in its original uh more expect we'll call it expansionist phase yeah so reading point. this here just again um some of it that a lot of the sources say that the official destruction of the libraries in alexander because there are multiple libraries right okay um 
uh, according to what I'm reading again here, um, remember, this is old thoughts in my head, right? Um, is that they eventually said to destroy it um, by Caliph Omar. Um, but in the other books I was reading in some of the history that it was destroy it, but take the stuff out first. Yeah. Right. In yeah. a sense. So a little bit later in timeline, um, get mixed my mixed memory here. Um, okay. But yeah, so we we'll call it mid 700s, 600, 700s in that area. You got yeah, it going yeah. on. Um, hits the Catholic priest. Again, I think it's it all kind of morphs. I was saying the dawn when you were gone. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you're looking at some of that 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 stuff, um, and I was talking about the show, the order, and how they were trying to pull things in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it 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 what it shows is that, and I think that the whole thing I learned out of following this mysticism is the history of mysticism in my perspective after reading so much is not unlike a Hollywood TV show mm -hmm. um, in the sense that it's a whole lot of made up stuff mm -hmm. that takes ounces of reality and take, takes ounces of truth mm -hmm. and then turns them into the means of whoever has them in their possession at that moment in time. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you could take that to Satanism and turn that around to how you want it to. You can turn it to just about anything you want. Because mm -hmm. in the end, the, sorry to say in the intro, the secret masters don't exist. That there is no unbroken chain of information. That there's the Freemasons don't rule the world. Sorry to break your heart. Um, <laughs> you would you say know, that as a Freemason. Of course I would. This, is, <laughs> this whole thing is a giant Freemason conspiracy to make you believe something that you don't, I don't want you to follow. Exactly. You, you, you just throw us all off the track, dude. That's right. I've just completely messed you all up. <laughs> well, that that hits it kind of, I think, um, with what you were just saying, one of the big problems that you get with mysticism, and I think like in the modern era, leads to conspiracy theories and all kinds of weird stuff, is a lot of what people get out of it and a lot of what they put into it is wish fulfillment. Mm. Absolutely. And then that's why you'll get these weird things. And then what ends up happening is because uh, another good example from history would be like the idea of Atlantis. As far as we know, Atlantis was made up. It, it, it didn't. Right. It didn't really exist. It's from uh, the the Timaeus mm -hmm. by Plato that it's one of his his allegories. But so many people want it to exist that they can't let it go. And there's a lot of like weird like ideas that come from antiquity that people will keep bringing back and then they'll just hang on with like a Vulcan death grip because once you commit your life to this, it kind of has to be true or you wasted, you know, your mm. life. That's true. Although there kind of was an Atlantis though. Um, well, actually, because you got to remember that about oh, when the, is it called the, not the Elder Dryas, but basically 12,800 years ago, we had a comet strike that hit the North Pole and flooded a good chunk of the Earth, which is where all mm -hmm. the flood legends come from and everything, right? So that's probably just talking about that. It just got corrupted over time. Yeah. Well, I mean, this idea of filling in the blanks with information you don't have, mm -hmm. um, with information you want to put in there is not new. Right. This has gone on for for generations and generations it's gone on for hundreds of years where we just filled in the blanks where there's lack of information we fill the void humans do that all the time mm -hmm. it's our nature we we try we're we're pattern finding machines where we're always yes. looking for the patterns and we're always trying and we create them where we don't find them i once read an entire book i one of my worst one of my 
least favorite um, ways of looking at scholarly is people who use phenomenology in their research. And it's very simply put is phenomenology is everything that looks the same is the same. Therefore, I'm going to write a book about it. And I'm going to tell you all this stuff is the same. And I once read a book and the entire book was about why the number seven was important. And I I wish I could take that time back in my life. Um, (laughs) But I mean, seriously, the entire book, 200 pages of of all this evidence. And finally, at the very end, he says, so you see. Number seven is a mystical number because all these people used it. And, and I, I felt so empty after I read it because I was like, <laughs> my God, like, so what? Why? What's the point of this? Why did you just waste my time telling me this? I didn't learn anything. I just learned that all these people like the number seven. But how, how did that access God? How did that access? What did they do with it? Why, why seven? Why? Oh, my goodness. So phenomenology is phenomenology is a really bad thing and so unfortunately one of the other things i had to go through was heaping through just reams and reams of people who did who study that style of thing i mean Mm. if you look at um dan brown what's the the da vinci code yeah those books i mean really what he's using Mm-hmm. is is a guy who wrote a lot of Holy Blood, Holy Grail and all these books. He's just using his stuff and his theories, which mm-hmm. is really just phenomenological studies of everything related to legends of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And then pulling it all together and saying, well, there's we don't have a finished, a finished story, so we're going to suggest that the Templars did this. And the reason the Templars were there is because of this. And you fill in all these gaps. And so mm-hmm. what's the gap they fill in? The gap they fill in is, well, they don't really have a reason why they went to Jerusalem. So what did they do? Well, we think they went to Jerusalem because there were only six guys. They must have been up to something. And they were just mm. stupid six guys who were like, we're the best fighters ever. We can fight anybody. We don't care. Bring on the hordes. Um, mm. But instead, they had to have been going for an excavation. Why did they bring a shovel with them? I don't know, because they had to poop and they had to dig a hole to put it in. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just that simple, right? Right. So they, yeah. had be, they had to be excavating. They must have found the Holy Grail. They must have brought it back to a church. That is, I mean, this is the, this is the mm-hmm. way legends create. And, and mm. the guy who wrote those books, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head, is the biggest culprit of creating a ton of false facts. Because when you read it, um, you know, I was in university reading these things and I was looking for footnotes because I'd go, wait a minute, where did you get the information from? Oh, nowhere. He just made all this up because he mm-hmm. footnote everything he had and there'd be giant paragraphs of his opinion written in there. And I'd look at it and go, there's no footnotes on this. This is just his opinion. So then you start to learn, how do I, I, it's all garbage. I filter all that out. He's not saying anything here. He's just guessing. He's mm. just making something up as he goes. Now it's just a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the problems you run into too. No, no, I can totally see that. Yeah. But and so again, yeah, go ahead, Don. Oh, no, go ahead. I'll... So you take that direct bad scholarly, bad scholar and bad mysticism and bad stories mm. And, mm-hmm. and false stories, and it becomes one of the best blockbusters. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You mix it with pop culture, and then the next generation thinks all that stuff is true because they vaguely right. remember hearing about it. And Absolutely. that becomes the new layer of truth. Yeah. I mean, look at what's the, what's the one with Nicolas Cage, National Treasure? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all about the fact that the Masons have a secret treasure somewhere, right? 
Right, yeah. <laughs> and you're going to tell us they don't because that's your job. Yeah, well, then Dan Brown wrote a, Dan Brown wrote a book about that too, right? About this Masonic treasure that yeah. exists as well. Oh, okay. Where is it, Towers? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, I wish I could tell you. You know, it's funny because the Masons do now have whole groups of, I can say it because I'm not a member of it, but the Scottish Rite is all about Rosicrucianism. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. There's actually a, a degree in, in Freemasonry called the Rose Cross degree. <laughs> oh, wow. And then there's another degree that talks about the Templars. So they, put, they inject all this stuff in themselves mm-hmm. and take the legend on because it's fun. You know, why, why not, right? Right. <laughs> but, I, but, I, I, but again, I think that's what happens in, these, in, in, in modern culture now is now the difference between then and now is we have access to all this information immediately. Right. And so now you can pull out any legend, any story, anything, and you can you can kind of take it and move it how you want to move it. And I think that's what happens with all these things. Yeah. It's, and, and as a guy who researched this stuff, it's taken me a long time to not get mad at shows that get it wrong. <laughs> of course. Oh, yeah, I'll be, I'll, I will ruin shows for people that, have about, that are about mysticism. And I finally just had to learn to shut up and not care. Mm. Um, because my first, I was watching um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the new version on, on Netflix. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you saw it. So the new version <laughs> on Netflix is all this mist stuff. And there was this whole section about crossing the universe, crossing over this whole thing. And I started watching it and I was like, I listened to part of what they said and I got mad. And I'm like, this is just, I can't watch this anymore. I'm so frustrated. Like, at least do your research properly. Oh my God. And I was just mad. But then, you know, it's funny. I went back and I watched the second episode and I went, oh, they cleaned up their mistake. They weren't stupid. They were just purposely hiding information. <laughs> Actually, you know what? They got this right. And I was really impressed. And I was really excited because they actually did their research and, mm. and, had a very good connection to some really interesting mystical stuff in there. Oh, so are you actually <laughs> recommending people watch the new Sabrina the Teenage Witch reboot? It, it's actually not bad. I have to say it's better than The Order. Um, <laughs> okay. And I hate to say that. The order, you know what? The Order is written by a Canadian guy, Best of Intentions. Um, mm-hmm. It's a teen show. And the problem is it's not. I'm not the audience, right? I right, bet you yeah. if, I'm, if I'm 19 years old, I might think it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, yeah. it, it, because it really, it's just, it's just a different version of Twilight right. without vampires. It's got werewolves in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there's a great scene at the very end where they're cleaning up this house. And I saw it and I started laughing because they start carrying out all these artifacts out of this house. And two guys are carrying the exact replica of the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones. <laughs> And I killed myself laughing, and I love these. And I, I, I think I probably have to go back and watch it because I'm sure there's a ton of other stuff. That, right. And first of all, you're like, why is this in this town? Um, but secondly, it just made me laugh because I was like, okay, so really, what, what the hell? Because the idea is that this is an ancient group that's collected these things to protect right. them from bad people, kind of thing, right? Right. Um, but what I was saying to Dawn was. In, in the order, one of the principles is that there's this ancient book that has evil stuff in it that this guy is collecting mm-hmm. and pulling together and amassing and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I think it just, it just, all of this stuff just tells you that, you know, when you look at mysticism and, you know, you, to go back to something you asked me, why didn't I sit down and write this sometime? Mm-hmm. And I remember coming, you know, I remember, Don, I was talking to Doka about this and I, 
I, I, I got to the end of researching all this stuff and I had all these facts and I had all this information and I have this bibliography and I have all these half written chapters. I probably have about 150 pages of different things. And what I didn't, what I couldn't come up with, well, what's the point of all this? Mm -hmm. Right. What, what do I want people like, okay, I'm going to write this book and then people go, so why do I care? Because mm. I can look all again, I can look all this up on Wikipedia right now. So right. what's what is the point of all this? And I, I wonder if sometimes the point of all this is don't take yourself so damn seriously. <laughs> uh, I mean, really, I, I wonder if that's all it is, because in the end, why did people do these kind of things? Why do people desperately want to join the Rosicrucians? Why do people desperately want to join um the golden dawn or any of these groups and be a part of them and why do they self-implode on themselves when it, you know, because all inevitably they all do at some right. point in time there's some fight right and it's again it's over it's over who's in charge of what and whose idea is better because let's they're all just making it up on the fly as they go right. and and everybody and and so if you have a group of individuals who are rebelling against everything and so you have this group of individuals who are a counterculturing something. Inevitably, those people are just going to go back to being individuals again. Mm. They're not going to be want a part right. of a group, and they're going to want to be separate. And right. so that's one of the things I think that happens in everything. And, it, and it's a theme that plays out again and again in, um, in these shows is that the leader always self-destructs from its, from its followers at some point in time, right? Mm. That makes sense. Mm. Mm. Now, now let's take a slightly different tack. So, Dave, I have to ask you this. So, after you've done all this research and everything, and gone through all this stuff, has this made you actually believe more or less in like the supernatural itself? Like, you've done all the research about the people who study this, but what about the supernatural itself? Yeah, because a whole other thing is, I did all, I, on top of this. I also did research into like um paranormal activity don you probably remember that too yeah i did a whole lot of research into paranormal activity and the whether or not possession and ex all this kind of that's a whole other topic unto itself mm. um you know the first thing i i kind of came to someone asked this question it's never been asked and I, i'm gonna answer that part and i'm gonna come back to your question in a second okay sure go I was online on a sharing website a long, long, long time ago, and I was talking to this guy, and I was sharing, I was sharing books or something, and some guy from Scotland started talking to me, and I don't know why. We just started chatting. Um, I know he liked something I had, and we were talking back and forth, and he found out I took religious studies, and he said to me, "Does I have a degree in religious studies?" Mm -hmm. And he said to me, um, "What did that do to your belief in God and your belief in the universe?" And I said, you know, it's really funny because what studying everything, because it's really what I did, right, mm -hmm. did was it allowed me to rebuild my edifice of spirituality. And it and allowed me to build it instead of having a construct that someone put on top of me and said, here, this is Catholicism, believe this, because I was born and raised a Catholic. Mm -hmm. I was able to build it brick by brick. Right. And mm. put each brick in, brick in place. But I remember what I said at the time, and I said, but I left gaps because I want the wind to blow in and out of it at any time. I never, I don't want it to be a closed off structure. And mm. so I rebuilt my, my belief in my universal belief structure as a rather porous thing that allows ideas to flow in and out in any moment. Mm -hmm. 
and mysticism is somewhat the same way. Mm. So, because unfortunately I don't, I can't really, my feeling is after reading all this, there's no evidence that tells me that this was really anything more than hopes and dreams and wishes. Right. Really. Um, and this is going back to, you know, early science and hermeticism and all these kind of stuff. And, um, Kabbalah, it's hopes and dreams that if you do these things, this will happen to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you will pass through the seven gates of hell and, you know, Dante's Inferno and all. And, you know, you can pull out any of these reference points to how the, you know, how the universe works. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, none of it gets you really any closer to what's actual reality because all we have is our own human experience to do that. But then none of it mm-hmm. really says it doesn't exist either. Mm-hmm. Right? Because... Yeah. You know, out of human experience, we have a whole lot of, you know, you have a whole lot of thoughts of, mm-hmm. um, you know what I mean? You have a whole lot of exp- ways that you can kind of interpret things. Um, and I, like I said, I don't, for me, I guess in a real basic sense, I don't believe any of this really exists. Mm-hmm. That's my general feeling. Um, but I leave it open for someone to prove me wrong. Mm. on a daily basis and i I would not shake my foundation in any way shape or form if someone showed up today and could prove to me definitively that these things exist for real that hermes trismegistus was a real person who wrote these books that abramel and the mage was a real person that magic really exists and that you can cast a magic spell and make someone fall in love with you and all these kind of things right Mm -hmm. um that said we have a whole lot of evidence to show us that that probably doesn't exist Mm. because fair enough you know what I mean? So I, I, it's really hard. It's a very, it's a hard question and a simplistic answer at the same time, because like I said, for me, it's, it's all fiction, I guess, right. in a sense, it's all hope and dreams. Right. And so, and you know, I mean, I, maybe I probably believe that about religion in general though. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably my general stance on religion as a whole. Right. Um, but it, but I didn't come to it from a dishonest perspective. I didn't right. start as an atheist saying, I don't believe in anything. And I don't know if I'm an atheist. I can't say I am probably. Um, because I, there, there's val- I think there's value in, in, in human, um, in trying to find out why we exist and how mm. things work and, and why they work. And I think that's always going to be a natural human thing. And I think my worry about modern day atheism is that people stop thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And they stop worrying about why we come from, because out of why we exist and how we exist comes lots of lessons about morals and reality and about who we are and humility. And I and I worry that some of that gets lost when we fly to one side or the other. There's a lot of right now, a lot of impetus to fly towards the science side of things. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's wrong, but what I'm saying is you lose balance somewhere in the world. And I think yeah, okay. what... Yeah, I think what mysticism has always spoken to is a third balance between science and religion. It's mm-hmm. like a counterbalance in a sense. Because in some ways, a lot of it is a technical approach to how we identify with the universe mm-hmm. by marrying the soul and the mind together. Okay. So that's kind of where I sit, I think. Okay. So you never actually encountered anything that was that you couldn't explain during your research or time? You never had weird stuff happen that you're like, uh, I don't know about that? 
No, because um, inevitably you can prove it. You can figure out that it's a story versus reality, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's stories that um, Alan, or I think his name, Alan Bennett, Bennett died because him and McGregor Mathers got in a giant magic fight and lost. Their, there was this whole story about them throwing magic at each <laughs> other and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. and then and then when you read it, it was well, they were thinking they were throwing magic. They're sitting in rooms on the other side of the city and one guy's praying on the floor saying, I'm sending magic to this guy. And the other guy's saying, I'm sending magic to this guy. And then the third, the second guy finally ha- has a heart attack or something <laughs> right. along that line. He's right. like, ha my magic defeated him. Um, right. You know, it's easy to say after the guy can't defend himself anymore. Um, right, that's true. <laughs> it, you know, who's going to, de- you know, it's this kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm. there's been nothing at all that has supported that any of this really is there right Mm -hmm. in any way um it's a great mystery mystery Mm -hmm. story to tell and it's a great mystery adventure to unwrap but nothing in my research has shown it's any more than um like i said hopes and dreams Hmm. that's kind of weird i think um i think what you're sort of hitting on with um the loss of the mystery for for people in general is that we really 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 want an absolute answer to every question and when you ask the idea about where do we come from that's not something we'll ever probably be able to answer but asking that question is kind of worthwhile because like you said it it teaches us about who we are right Yes. I mean, the Jewish Kabbalah comes from a want to mysticize a document that became demystified. When, mm-hmm. when you take the Torah and you make it absolute truth of existence, that this actually happened, that mm-hmm. Methuselah lived to be a thousand years and this really happened. He was a thousand years old and you can't debate it because it's literal truth in the, in the Jewish world. Right, yeah. When everything is true that was written in that book, if you're on the other side of things going, but where's my, I want to have fantasy, you know, I want to have something else to believe in too. The Kabbalah comes from a reinterpretation of all that stuff to create mythology and mysticism around the stories of the Torah so that people could dream again mm-hmm. and create this I, and, and, and continue to find a relationship. Because in, instead of just reading a story about a guy who went onto a mountain and found the documents that told them that they were supposed to follow 10 rules um, and that they never get to experience those things. And that happens in, you know, we read all these stories. Well, where's the prophets after, you know, 48? Where right. did they exist? What happened to them all? Why don't they come around anymore? Why don't we see prophets anymore? You know, where did this all, why did it stop all of a sudden? Well, there's probably some good reasons for that. Um, the Kabbalah chose to re-mystify the Torah, basically. That was the initial ideas from, from, from uh, rabbis that were doing it because they wanted more out of their religious experience. And then it kept developing and snowballed itself to create a whole other thing. Right. And by the time it hit the 1200s, it was something completely different with a completely different legend where Adam had a last name. His name's Adam Kadmon in the Tal- in the Kabbalah, and in the Zohar, wow. and so the, it it just it, huh. it's something that continues to go, and again, it's just this constant attempt to recontextualize our human experience hmm. in a new way. 
And I and again, I think that's what mysticism all is all about. I think it's really just about how we relate to the world around us, mm-hmm. and and a, and a fun way of doing it in some ways for some people. <laughs> huh. And I think that's probably actually a great place to leave this. Actually, sounds I good. Th- yeah, I think that's a. I think that'll that's a fantastic definition and. Thank you for taking us on this incredibly interesting and long journey, Dave. I mean, that's um, it, it, we can tell that you know so much about this topic that we probably barely scratched the surface. Yeah, I probably didn't get half the stuff out. I hope I was accurate with what I was talking about. I didn't have much stuff in front of me. It was all pulling right. from my head for the most part. So, oh, don't worry. It was, all, it was all coming from the heads of most of the people <laughs> you were talking about anyway. So it didn't really matter. Well, it's true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm inaccurate, I'm just inaccurate about inaccuracies, right? So exactly. So you you're just adding to the inaccuracy, which that's is, right. Whatever. Um, <laughs> any final thoughts, Tom, before we go? Yeah, I think the uh, biggest lesson we've learned from all this is if you're part of a secret cabal bent on world domination, get an unlisted phone number. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, that's a tip for all you world. Sorry, that's a tip for all you would-be world mystic conquerors out there. Make sure your phone number is unlisted and stay off Facebook. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so thanks for listening, folks. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about something almost as awesome as this. Uh, Or maybe more. We'll find out. Good night, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!